Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. We'll throw down the glove and have an academic data science debate with literally absolutely anybody who wants to try to pigeonhole search into a, a niche. Hi, I'm Michael Casson. Welcome to Good Company, where I'll explore how marketing, media, entertainment, and tech are intersecting, transforming our lives and the way we do business at a breakneck speed. I'll be joined by some of the greatest business minds and strongest leaders who will share how they've built companies from the ground up or transformed them from the inside out. My bet is you'll pick up a lesson or two along the way. It's all good. I'm excited today to welcome two guests to the Good Company podcast. First of all, the EDO founder and as well, the president and CEO. And number one, the EDO founder is Edward Norton. And Edward, you don't need much introduction. Certainly, most of us, I know, have enjoyed you, know, you as talent, both in front of the camera and behind the camera. And I hearken back to the Oscars, aka Sunday Night at the Fights, when one of the Academy Award winners talked about his daughter referring to him as a, a nominee, now he gets to say a winner. You've won a couple of awards. You've had many nominations, but you have certainly been awarded and honored in this industry. And I will say I've had the pleasure of enjoying you on the screen, but I've also had the pleasure of listening to you speak to a group of advertisers a couple of years ago when I walked away saying, he's not just a pretty face. He knows a thing or two about a thing or two. And so it's a pleasure to welcome you. And as well, it's a pleasure to welcome Kevin Krim, who's the president and CEO of EDO. And we've had the pleasure of working together, Kevin, in different iterations, and most recently with EDO. So uh, I want to welcome you both to Good Company. I'm excited to be able to share with our listeners some amazing insights and some understanding about what motivated you both to really get into the trench here on the not as a sexy side of the business, but actually if one you know, looks at it through the lens you do and I do, maybe the sexiest part of the industry, which is measurement. You know, So I would ask you both, Edward and Kevin, what was it that motivated you to make a move and get into the measurement business? Yeah, it's fun to get into the weeds with, <laughs> with someone who's not a, a cub reporter and asking us what measurement means. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, we were go. talking about. I always how, wanted uh, to be Jimmy Olsen, but I'm happy not to be a reporter. <laughs> no, I, I it's for Kevin and I. It's a it's a sweet relief to talk to a veteran and to an audience group that's also probably you know pretty advanced in their uh, their level of conversancy with all this stuff. You know, it's funny. I worked in I worked in low income housing tax credit syndication finance when I first got out of school. If you can. You know, like a lot of people, I think the actor's traditional, like my job before I first got a gig was is waiter and, you know, whatever. I I, I worked in kind of this esoteric corner of, um, and I got, I had a lot of friends who were in finance and I got really interested in financial technologies and investing in that kind of stuff and always kept that up, even as my my moonlighting in the theater kind of took on a life of its own and became a career. Yeah, I would say, and, uh, I would say it became a career, Edward. <laughs> Along the, um, anyway, I had a, I had, I had a friend named Daniel Nadler, who's the co-founder of EDO with me. Daniel also was a creative person, a published poet. He also, on the side, had a kind of an intellectual and finance career. He, 
he had a PhD from Harvard in quantitative data science and had pioneered data science technologies at the Fed to help them analyze economic patterns. And I was really lucky. I, talking to Daniel, he had this incredible idea about applying cutting-edge machine learning and artificial intelligence to financial market data. And he had a really articulate and passionate kind of view of how he thought it could it could democratize the analytics that get siloed by hedge funds and things like that. And and so he, he, he set off on this kind of quixotic thing to build a company called Kensho. And I, I was lucky to be one of his early investors and ultimately one of his biggest in, investors um, alongside others like Goldman Sachs and General Catalyst and, and ultimately all the, the six biggest banks at, at, and the CIA in QTEL invested in the company too. And what Daniel built with Kensho was, was truly astonishing. It, the company was ultimately bought by S&P. And he really showed, he, he's one of, I would say he's a global innovator in looking at the way that, you know, massive parallel processing and machine learning and stuff can be applied to open source data, not, not just proprietary data, but to open source data like search and other things like that to build incredibly powerful predictive models around financial market outcomes and things like that. I'll, I'll give you an example because it relates to our world. He, they showed that, for instance, very granularly specific search query around Netflix subscription signups in European markets could end up being more predictive of what Netflix's economic performance was going to be over the next couple quarters than most of the other analysis that was out there. And this was all through the really pioneering way that his company ingested and analyzed minute-to-minute -minute search data around specific topics. It ended up being a very hailed company in the financial and intelligence community world. And I, and I was lucky enough to sort of be along for the, the ride or be adjacent to Daniel's efforts on that. Along the way, I said to him, you know, you say, what was the song or what was the moment? You know, I was, I was in some good movies like Birdman and, and um, Grand Budapest Hotel and other things like that where I saw firsthand, you know, the, the noble and in some ways successful efforts of the studio to market these films, Oscar campaigns, all of that, except I was also privy to the fact that Wes Anderson and all the rest of us and all of us who were in Birdman were inside compensation formulas that were basically going to be very difficult for us to climb out from under the marketing spend inefficiency, but because talent compensation these days is more and more tied to net profit formulas as opposed to gross, which it used to be before DVDs got atomized. And and so it, it sounds funny, but I was very specifically aware of how compensation of creators, filmmakers, actors, was getting hammered by marketing inefficiency because the more the more a studio spends that that's an even bigger hole that you have to recoup and climb out from under before yeah, that PNA that PNA ends up changing your life for sure. Exactly. Exactly. And and everybody thinks an Oscar campaign sounds great if a studio is spending on it, but what you don't realize is they're literally spending your money. <laughs> they are they, they are spending every dollar they spend is is a dollar you have to climb out from under to ever get into Wes Anderson seeing upside on on one of his best and most. Well, I, I, I want to interrupt for one second. I want to interrupt for one second, Edward, because I want to tell you a, a story and it involves Clint Eastwood. And it's a really interesting story because your focus 
you know that you're not the first, but I will tell you why I mentioned Clint Eastwood in this conversation. Back in the day when I ran a large media agency, our largest client was the Walt Disney Company. And we were exclusive to the Walt Disney Company with one exception. We could buy for Clint Eastwood for Malpaso Productions because the founder of the company that I ended up running called Western International Media, Dennis Holt, who was the founder, had been very good friends with Clint in, back in the day. They were in ROTC together and you know they were, they were contemporaries. And the most efficient marketing campaigns of any movies that I ever experienced were Malpaso Productions, anything that Clint produced. And why? Because Clint would actually show up at the planning meetings with the media agency and he paid attention. And because he showed up back in the day, Bob Daly and Terry Semmel would show up to those meetings because they knew Clint was showing up. And the fact that Clint Eastwood paid enough attention to the detail of the actual media plan changed the efficacy, back to your word, of the media yep. spend because he paid attention. It's so funny that I'm hearing you say it, but through a different lens, but I actually saw it in practice 30 years ago. It's really interesting. Yeah. I just, yeah. I and, had to interrupt to say and, that. No, not at all. It, it's, it's always been sort of the, I mean, look, there's a reason that people wanted gross participation, right? Because it, it sort of atomized, it, you were getting it off the top line no matter so how much, much. On the marketing, right? Yeah. And 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 in and in our streaming world, where the value of the home video was was taken from the main profit center in the content media business model to being zero, effectively, right? right. Um, and uh, you 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 know, gross went away for the large majority of people um, in, in the industry, and and so so inefficiency of marketing actually affects talent. But the other thing is, and of course, now I'm just talking about the media, I, I'm talking about the, the content, you know, studio, right. television vertical, but still, you know, a studio's appetite for the type of material it makes is a function of its sense of the risk, right, uh, of the cost. And, and part of the reason studio producers and financiers shy away from the most challenging material is they struggle to see how they're going to get their return, and that's only rational, right? So, so inefficiency of marketing spend, if, if, if two-thirds of your spend is, is inefficient, it, it just means that you, you, it's harder for you to see a path to how you're going to do well on something challenging, right? And so, so it's not just what do creators get paid, it's what content even gets made. By the way, suffers, absolutely. Suffers from a sense of the top line cost versus the return. And, and so, so the better genre, the better studio. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I was going to say, think of genre and think of Westerns and all of a sudden you have a Yellowstone and all of a sudden Westerns are now chic again and everybody wants to be uh, one of the Duttons, you know, in, in Yellowstone. So, it, it, and there's, but, there's, but the bottom, the bottom line is um, for me, I mean, just to bring it around to the, to where we actually are. I said to Daniel at one point, while Ken Show was rising in the financial market world as this kind of star um, in, in bringing machine learning and AI to, to those markets, not in a siloed way, like through quant hedge funds and stuff who keep their black box, right? He was, he was democratizing it. I said to him, should we start a media division of Ken Show because you're out here crushing the baseline data science capabilities in very sophisticated markets like the intelligence community and, 
and finance, you're, you're, you're demonstrating data science alpha even in those worlds. And I said, without, without throwing shade on people, this is an industry that's still pricing it, all, all its advertising around a 75-year-old data metric called a Nielsen rating that is so obsolete and so absurdly blunt and uninsightful. You know, it's like you're, you're talking about something that was developed when we had three major networks and every demographic of audience was constrained into those three. And so if you said, how many eyeballs did I get in X demographic, that was about the best proxy you could come up with for did I reach my target audience, right? But we're in a world where of Facebook and digital advertising where the expectation of, you know, how many people maybe saw something. Yeah. And so what? Right. Right. And I mean, we're, we're in the point now where, where you should be able to know much, much, much more about the value you got back from every dollar you applied. And, and yet amazingly in the television landscape, not just linear, but streaming the convergent TV landscape, we were still even seven years ago, we, we were still floating along with everybody, you know, assuming that, you know, it's, it's still sort of the best we've got, and even though everyone on the network side, like Kevin, when he was at CNBC, were basically breaking faith with this idea that their, their inventory should be priced off of Nielsen ratings, right? And, and so I said to Daniel, listen, the, the, the big lie is that everything is shifting to digital. It's not. It, there's still probably 60 to 70% of all major are, you know, sector verticals advertise on television. The large preponderance of advertising dollars still goes to television because they know it's a powerful medium. But the data science has not matured on that side of the line because it's hard and because Nielsen – Nielsen doesn't not only doesn't get to hire people like Daniel, it doesn't even get to meet them, right? Like top data science does not go to media historically. It doesn't certainly doesn't go to legacy companies like Kantar and and Nielsen. It goes to quant hedge funds and to the to the intelligence community and to yeah, Google, absolutely, right? Absolutely. And and look, but, it, it, the, so that's why you didn't have you didn't have intellectual you didn't have technological improvement in the legacy media data companies. But you didn't have to, we didn't have to because the world accepted a currency. The bottom line is I, I've sort of said, Kevin and I have laughed, I've said like, it's like if you needed brain surgery in the Pleistocene era, that was like a stone ax and you, you would take it, you know, but, but today if, if, if someone came at you with 19th century tools, you'd say like, get me the fucking gamma knife. You know what I mean? I want, <laughs> I, I want the best. And, and that, that is, that is the level of technological data science insight that these legacy companies are delivering. Well, and, and, and Edward, I'm going to throw something out. So, you know, traditionally we talked about the brand marketer and the performance marketer, and those were separate and distinct groups inside of an organization, inside of an agency. I had my brand marketers and I had my performance marketers. It really was brought to my attention by American Express when we worked with them on reimagining their organization and, and bringing the two together. And I give credit to Elizabeth Rutledge, the chief marketing officer of American Express for saying to me, Michael, I need MediaLink's help to bring these two disciplines together before we go into the market and choose a new agency. And I had an epiphany and I always say the light bulb went off and I get corrected. Some people say, no, the light bulb goes on. For me, the light bulb goes off because I think of it as flashing. But when the light bulb went off, 
I said, well, so what you're saying is brand marketing and performance marketing are coming together. And I always like to find a turn of a phrase. And I said, I'm going to call it brand performance marketing. And it was the idea of bringing the data and the discipline that one applied to what was traditionally performance marketing mm -hmm. together with that, which was the more esoteric kind of amorphous brand advertising. Because brand advertising is, i.e., the I want to build the brand performance advertising or marketing is I want somebody to take an action and think of it with American Express using them as the primary example. You know, you had the don't leave home without it. That was the brand marketing membership has its rewards, but the performance marketing was, it's great that you have that American Express card in your pocket, but are you using it? Because they only make money when you use the card. So the call to action the data that you use to do that is the data that you should be using to do brand marketing, ergo brand performance marketing. So that was my little turn of a phrase. But yeah, it and really look, it, it, it's a good segue. Um, it's a good segue because as I was having this conversation with Daniel back in the day, I said to him, listen, I'm looking at what you guys are doing on, on predictive analytics and ROI analytics for the financial markets. And I said, you know, the ultimate, the holy grail, I, I pointed out to him, look, you, you have legacy data companies like Nielsen, Kantar, Comscore that maybe at one point represented over 25 billion of market cap, and it, it, and they're just cratering, right? They're they're they've they've gone in half. So you have a big open space, and you have you have a captive client base that really wants an, a better option. They know they need a better option, right? I said, so the opportunity is real. I I got. A mutual ally of Daniel's in mind, Jim Breyer, the legendary Excel. I, I know Jim uh, well. He's he's a brilliant, Jim, a brilliant Jim not only one of the one of the great technology investors, but also on the board of Fox and on and Marvel and an early investor in Legendary. So of all the people Daniel and I knew, he had become an investor in Ken Show as well. He really straddled these worlds. And and Jim and I convinced Daniel not only that the that the market opportunity was one of those things that I, I always say, like, you know, some things, some, some things go very slow and then very fast, and it felt to me like the post-Nielsen moment was being talked about, but that at a certain point it was going to go very fast, and yeah. the people with the, the new currency positioned with it who have done the, the hard work to get it ready will, will benefit from that and will benefit the market. And, and we kind of convinced Daniel that there was, a, there was a there there. And so we the reason we started EDO was – we believed in this concept of sort of that there was a data science talent arbitrage available in this, but we know with all respect, those people who have those capabilities do not get hired into these markets, but because Daniel was a very celebrated entrepreneur and data scientist with great success in building Kensho in the financial markets, he, he had the ability to go to Harvard and MIT and Stanford and, and really recruit the creme de la creme of some of the top, you know, machine learning uh, and engineering talent on the planet and bring a cohort of them in and we brought it together. And the, the key piece, because I want to hand this to Kevin, is we knew we could bring an unprecedented cohort of data science caliber to this problem set, but obviously you have to understand the way that this sits within the industry. And Kevin... Kevin was at Universal, NBC Universal, um, and and we he 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 was he identified Ken Show 
as an incredible innovation and actually got it programmed onto CNBC as the Ken Show stats box and and helped push Steve Burke and Comcast to make a co-investment with Goldman Sachs and Ken Show. And so, you know, Daniel said to me, there's this guy at CNBC who really gets it. Um, and as we all got talking, we realized that Kevin Kevin was, you know, a key a key advocate for CNBC dropping Nielsen ratings as its pricing metric. And when we all started to talk, Daniel and I just instantly realized, like, you know, he was running another company. I have a day job, too. And we had we had put together this really great team, but we needed someone who was capable of straddling, you know, understanding the buy-sell uh, ecosystem in a, you know, C-suite kind of way, but also really conversant with technology on a level that would do it. And so the best thing that happened for us was Kevin agreed to leave NBCU and come and run EDO. And, and, and basically, you know, the last few years has been Kevin leading the charge on getting our both our network, you know, advertising sellers and all of our brand clients to come to understand why what we're doing is of higher value than the nice-to-have signals that are out there, let alone these kind of obsolete um, you well, know, exposure well, metrics from Nielsen and, 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 and all the success we've had leading up to this, this fantastic investment round. You know, Edward, I want to say one thing before I turn it over to Kevin, but, you know, you talked about the actions. I'm going to bring it back to kind of dime store philosophy um, which was something I learned from my grandmother, of all things. Um, she taught me when I was a kid not to read people's lips, but watch their feet. And, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's what you just said. It's one thing to think of the signals. It's one thing to think of the likes. It's one thing to think. But what did they actually do is what really matters. And if you're a marketer, knowing what actually happened, and look, Kevin was famous to me before we got to work together at EDO because he cut quite a path at CNBC and at, and other parts of the digital uh, ecosystem that Kevin worked in. And I can't imagine a better choice uh, that you guys made for uh, someone to be uh, in this leadership role with EDO because Kevin understood it and reputationally, the marketplace knew that as well. It was so illuminating when at CNBC, we would put together, we would, put together these massive we'd call them 360 packages back then right it'd be a combination of traditional linear and all the digital kind of assets that we had we put together these huge 15 30 million dollar sponsorship packages for all the endemic advertisers at, at cnbc right the charles schwab's or the td ameritrades the fidelities and you do a review with them and say okay all these things that we did for you you know what would you like us to do more of going forward and they'd say you know there was this moment where we did these co-branded segments where we're teaching we're teaching your viewers how to do you know more advanced trading on uh online and and we'd see these massive spikes in activity on our platforms and we'd say well that's great let's let's talk about that data let's get into it we'll, we'll try to maximize that for you and they'd say well that's that's too precious for us that's that's our data we can't ha let you have it but it got, got us thinking about the opportunity to, to truly level that playing field and say, for both the buy side and the sell side, here's the data of what's working, right? And our mantra at EDO is know what works, the ability to just see it. And, and, and Michael, I love that, you know, watch their feet, not their lips kind of uh, advice. 
because we see it in the data all the time. When you do correlations on share of search in a competitive category, and you name it, it, it works in insurance, automotive, restaurants, uh, uh, pharma, and certainly in entertainment, like movies and streaming originals. If you stack up share of search, so of the competitive set, who's getting the most share of search, it is not only strongly correlated with their market share, but it's predictive of it. It's an early leading indicator. So if you see someone gaining share of search a couple quarters later, and it depends on the category, you'll see them gain market share. It is the KPI that every CMO should have at the top of their dashboard uh, every day, every week. And frankly, it's the kind of KPI that'll level the playing field in the boardroom for them, right? The CMO is sitting there at a, just at a literal disadvantage when you've got the head of sales, the head of distribution, the CFO, the CEO talking about results. And then the CMOs are walking in with GRPs and some you know, brand attribute survey of, of favorability. And the board is saying, and then what? Okay, you reached 65% of your target audience. We got a couple upticks in our, in our brand survey, then what? And what we can help connect is that very moment that you're talking about, that brand performance moment, where it's not an or, it's an and. Because right. rooted in what we're doing is the understanding of the 21st century consumer. They are an always connected, always on consumer. They are never more than centimeters away from uh, a connected device. And if they see something in the programming, in the content, or in the commercial breaks, they see something that moves them, moves their hearts and minds, they, their fingers do the walking for them. And that is, that is the thing where you can't fake it. You People can't don't fake. lie with their fingertips. Yeah. You they know, lie to surveys all the time. I, I, I tell you, Kevin, that we did a, a conversation several years ago during advertising week. MediaLink always has a a, a wonderful spot to tell our stories. And we did something years ago on the loss of serendipity in marketing. And, you know, we said, here we all are searching for the right device at the right time to the right person in the right context. All of those things are valid and important drivers, but we can't forget there is something in marketing called, you know, surprise and delight. And, and so if you think of auto manufacturers, and I've told this story so many times, but it still resonates. You think of auto manufacturers, they always wanted to reach Edward Norton or, or Kevin Krim when they're, quote, in market for a car. Right. What does that mean? It means your lease is up. It means you just got moved to a new city. Your kid just got their license. Whatever it may be, you're in market. So that's when you want to get that person with a car ad, right? Well, the story I like to tell, it was a, a milestone birthday for me. Yes, it was 25. No, I'm kidding. But um, <laughs> this was a couple of years ago. And my wife said, do you want to do you want to watch or do you want to party? I said, no, I, I don't want to party. And I, you know, I've got enough watches. So I was affirmatively not in the market for a watch. OK, right. I picked up a catalog in in my house and it opened to a picture of a watch. And I went, whoa. I ended up buying that watch, okay? So the surprise and delight of that ad, yep. if you will, changed my purchase intent. I went from affirmatively not wanting it, in fact, affirmatively saying no, right. to actually buying it. 
that was serendipity because if I didn't pick up that picture at that moment and look at that magazine, that catalog, it was actually a department store catalog. So I tell that story all the time because we want to be precise. We want to get all the science and all the data, but we also have to blend it in the right way with the artistic part of the business. And it's kind of the merger of mad men and math men, you know, right. that, that we're seeing. And yet you want to have both. How do, how do you manage that? The most frustrating thing that I come across is the desire to pigeonhole what we do into that that sort of small box of, oh, well, you're about data, you're about performance or, you know, the various ways that people want to put us, compartmentalize us away into something that they don't need to pay attention to. And I, and I, what I do is whenever I'm talking to a, a head of marketing or a head of media or head of investment in a big agency, I say, let's just play a game. I'm going to open our software up and let's pick, pick one of your favorite brands, your brand, if it's you, if it's a marketer or one of your clients. And let's watch two ads. I'm not going to tell you anything about the data yet. We're going to watch two of these ads. And one inevitably I'll have chosen ahead of time is going to be a brand ad, right? The big high concept. We're not trying to sell you anything right now. Don't, and, leave, home and, with, don't leave home without it. Right, exactly. And then, and then, I'll, and then I'll show them a, you know, a limited time offer spot or a sales event spot or something that's down funnel retail performance, right? That's, that's how inevitably they're categorized. And nine and a half to 10 times out of 10, it's the good brand spot that outscores in terms of driving people to take actions like going and searching for the brand, going to the website, going to a shopping site to look for that brand, all those actions. It's the brand ad that drives more of that. It's significantly more of that. The single best ad in all of non-luxury automotive last year was a spot from Toyota during the Summer Olympics where they were showing a group of young women, teammates, piling into a self-driving car, a car that is purely a concept. It won't be available for probably the next decade. And the car's playing songs with them, singing with them, doing karaoke with them. It was a fantastic ad. It has nothing to sell right now for Toyota, nothing in the next decade. And it was the highest performing single ad in all of non-luxury automotive. And, you know, it's, the, it's a surprising delight. My daughter sitting next to me knows that we work closely with Toyota. So she pays attention and she's, she says, is that from Toyota? Is that really from Toyota? And it had changed her mind about what Toyota could be for her. She's 13, but she will be buying a car in the next decade. Absolutely. No, you got to plant the seed early. I mean, you know, I, I learned this back in the day working with um, Home Depot, the highest selling SKU, branded SKU at Toys R Us back in the 90s was the Home Depot toolkit for kids. So, you know, kids grew up with Play School or whatever it might have been that, you know, the, the hardware kits, whatever, you know, the right. toolkits, that is the word I was looking for. And Home Depot branded it Home Depot. And again, it was the highest selling branded SKU inside Toys R Us in the old days. And I said, well, of course, because, you know, I, I was taught a long time ago, you don't want to start advertising a Mercedes to somebody when they can afford it. You want to start advertising it to them when they when they're aspirational. So that's that right. when they can afford it, that's the that's the standard. That's what they're looking for. Home Depot took the same approach. So you're absolutely right. You know, your daughter's not ready to buy a car yet, or are you ready to buy her one? But you will be shortly. Uh, trust me, you'll be buying it. And, you know, as a result of that, you're right. Because the, the, the mm -hmm. nagging of kids, by the way, we did a study years ago called the nag factor. 
you know, not in a pejorative way nagging, but, you know, what's the value of getting the kids to nag on the parents to do something? Huge. And, and how do you do that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the things I'm proudest of, Michael, is that the we've been working with Disney, um, both on the as the studio marketing their originals, marketing Disney Plus and Disney selling the ads for across their, you know, family of networks. The proudest thing I am is that the, the creatives at the studio at Disney, the folks cutting the 30 second and 15 second spots for their films, all the way up to Asada Yaza, who, who runs the whole marketing division, they can't wait to see our data about their new spots. They are clamoring for it first thing in the morning before the first cup of coffee, because it's completely non-judgmental. It just tells them what's working. Right. It leaves their judgment to figure out what should we do from here? Well, I, I can tell you, Kevin, I will tell our audience how right you are. We, we led in 2019 the global review for the Walt Disney Company to determine working with Assad and, and the team and you know to determine who was going to be the person placing billions of dollars of media on behalf of the Walt Disney Company globally. And I know how important this is because the work we did around Disney Plus was really again, that illustration of the brand formants, because traditionally, the Walt Disney Company, as all the studios were marketing to put butts and seats on Friday, Saturday and Sunday when Edward's opening a movie. And on the one hand, with Disney Plus and the streamers, everybody had to reassess and it gets to the brand formants. They had to reassess that their marketing muscle needed to be put against subscriber acquisition and avoiding churn. And that's a different marketing muscle, as we talked about earlier. So you're spot on relative to how that impacts not only what Assad and, and the marketing side puts on the air, but it has massive impact for what Rita Farrow and Lisa Valentino and the people in their group are selling. So it's, right. it's both sides of that equation. And, um, right. You know, I'll just chime in that there's these other like, there's multiple derivatives of efficiency that flow out of a data insight capability that lets you see in market in real time what's getting a type of grab that you come to have confidence really lines up with purchase intent, right? And and one of them, you're kind of, you're talking around it, but it's worth saying because you, you were kind of saying this in our conversation earlier, Michael, think about the amount of money that historically any kind of marketer has spent in the lab trying to score the sentiment around something, right? Not really knowing whether lab-based analysis of sentiment lines up with any of the things that actually matter in terms of <laughs> the actions the consumer takes, right? But think about the amount of money that's wasted, I would argue, trying to do lab assessment when a lot of our clients are starting to realize they can literally cancel that lab analysis market testing budget because they can do an A and a B creative, take a package of low cost cable inventory just to A, B test in the same target market type of thing. They can put one up and put the other up and they can, the same dollars they would have spent in the lab, not actually even putting it in the marketplace, they can put it in the actual marketplace and watch in real time what gets the purchase intent grab from the actual market. So literally your whole lab testing budget 
goes direct into into actually putting spend out into the world, and you get a higher grade analysis of which of your creative variations works in in real time in the market. Are you sure you're not a secret media buyer? Again, again, I know, but again, again, think about it from my point of view. Every dollar spent testing 30 second ad spots for a given movie is just lost leader for all of us who are trying to make money on the back end, right? If you put a 30 second ad number one <laughs> with Joker and 30 second ad number two and you put them up against each other, then at least it was ads and Warner gets to see in real time, wow, that one really takes. It has a little more humor in it. it who knows why, but it takes. Now we can just lean into that one and get more value out of the thing, but we didn't waste some money on some suppositional, you know, God forbid, like my, the, the, the test audience and the commentary of the focus group literally should end in the world. I mean, it's, it's, it's the single worst experience for a director, for a commercial director, for an ad marketer. No one should ever talk to a focus group ever again because they lie, their egos come into it. It's the worst way to assess anything that there is. And, and, you know, we, we, we had a funny thing with the universal guys when they were doing um, <laughs> 50 shades of gray, right? Like the, the market was telling them that they were going to do like 65 and our guys were saying, no, you're going to do like 110 in the opening weekend. Right. And this is a direct function of what we're talking about. If you survey people NRG style and say, Hey, are you going to see 50 shades of gray? A subtext. Are you up for a little light bondage this weekend a lot of people in a survey are going to say no but their search what what they're searching at home tells a very tells different story different. In, god knows yeah sitting in their underwear saying you know dakota johnson imagery combined with 50 shades of gray showtimes near me tonight <laughs> tells, a, <laughs> tells a, a, a much more accurate story about their appetite for bdsm than if you survey them right and that's 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 a, a really obvious one but i think um I mean, well, I think you know, it, it's funny you say that about the predictive. So years and years ago, and, and this is really a story worth telling, we, we came up with a strategy when I was running a media agency, which was looking at the theatrical release and the home video and the windowing. And what I, what I posited, and we proved it, was that on Friday morning of a week, opening weekend, by whatever time in the morning, you should be able to predict the entire life cycle value of that product. You should know what home video is going to do within a plus or minus 10% because you know what the box office did. There are examples of, of exceptions, but by whatever moment you know that opening weekend gross, you should be able to calculate the entire you know, value of that product through its windows. And as a result, you should be able to set your marketing budget because this was around setting the marketing budget. And it was a guy named Warren Lieberfarb, pretty famous in the day at Warner for creating the DVD, literally. And you know, he said, I should be able to know the marketing budget of that movie for home video the moment it opens in theatrical. And he was right, because you should be able to predict based on what the theatrical opening that opening Friday is going to be, is going to tell you what the home video volume is going to be. And it, it's that data that kind of should be informing everything we're doing. The focus group could never tell you that. The box office on Friday will and, tell you that. And to take another category of it, now, now we're talking about sort of the marketing side, but one of the reasons that some of the top, top network ad sellers have really 
you know, and I don't know, Kevin mentioned yeah. uh, to you earlier, it just, it happened to line up with this big in- investment round we just took in, but, you know, Discovery Networks announced that EDO is their uh, preferred core measurement analysis metric, which is thrilling for us, but in some ways unsurprising because we, we've played a central role in affirming to Discovery that they've got a huge percentage of this shows that deliver the bang for the buck in the whole industry. And if you're, if you're a seller, think about the fact of the persuasion that you've had to do around the notional reach of what your show provides, right? It's, it's such a soft science. Well, these number of people watch our show and this, it's kind of what Kevin said, yeah, you, you, you got to X number of people notionally and then what, right? If suddenly you're able to see a massive regression analysis of the way that you've driven purchase intent inflection on a specific show, everything, you're getting out of the weeds of generalities and you're able to say, hey, look, like Kevin said, this, this, may, this may seem like an unsexy show, this home improvement show, but look what it moves relative to, to other things for certain categories of people. What does that open up? And, and a particular head of all ad sales at one of the major networks said to us, my God, like, you know, we've stood here and watched financial market operators build structured products around bond yield or credit default swaps or whatever, and sat here just thinking, why can't we sell optimized pods of structured product on our advertising because we don't have sophisticated analytics that give us a data-driven finance-grade analysis. We're trying to open up for the sell side the capacity to build unprecedented sophistication into the way they package their inventory into structured products for specific clients, right? And if you think about what's going to bring the yield back to television you know, that's the kind of thing that, that will transform it because, you know, and this may be a controversial thing to say, but I would argue that after all the, the, the romance with the idea that digital was more, you know, effective, I think it's kind of gone the other way in digital. There's been a realization that a lot of what Facebook and other people assert is kind of being blown apart by really smart firms that are showing, well, you know, it didn't get off mute or it never really got watched in anything other than picture in picture. And the truth is a lot of what goes out in digital blows by and is being shown to be less effective than people thought. Whereas Absolutely. what we're doing is showing people that television is as or more effective than they even thought. Um, right. And <laughs> it's just in some sense, I think the television advertisers have had one hand tied behind their back because they, the, the meaning the, the the networks they they haven't been able to show what they believe to be true and that it is in fact true which is that they deliver the effect meaning the they move people to the action that does actually tend to line up with conversion you know what i mean yeah no ab- absolutely and look here's what i would say edward and kevin this is a conversation that you probably can tell that i would love to have for hours yeah, <laughs> this is this is bread and butter to me. And, you know, as, as I said to you, and we in, in the sort of green room before we were uh, recording, I'm a believer that our industry is pivoting on a couple of words. And those words are all with the T, as I said, you know, trust, transparency, technology, transformation and talent. And I think I actually said it on the broadcast as well. You guys are speaking truth to power. Uh, if you will, relative to trust and transparency so that people can 
make those decisions more real time. And look, one of the dynamics in the industry that makes EDO so much more important than it, it would be anyway is the importance of procurement and you know inside the organizations that we're talking about wanting to prove the efficacy of the spend. Because at the end of the day, you need to do that because when you have the, the bean counters looking at it more critically and understanding that you want to make sure, you know, the basic premise of the advertising industry is to be able to, if you're an agency or somebody placing media on somebody's behalf, you're really not unlike a mutual fund anyway. What you're hoping to render is a return on investment. What I think EDO is able to demonstrate is you don't have to waste any of it anymore. The other thing I, I would say is, is it's almost like within the marketplace of the new, there's, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of assertion going on, right? I think one of the things we've, we've been increasingly willing to say is like, we'll, we'll throw down the glove and have an academic data science debate with literally absolutely anybody who wants to try to pigeonhole search into a, a niche. Like, we think everything else is nice to have. And, and we'll throw down and say that not one thing anybody's pitching you um, that, that is not within that, uh, in terms of mid-funnel efficacy, you know, outcome uh, measurement, we, we don't think there's anything that can stack up as, as, a, as an authentic investment-grade metric of what your financial outcomes are going to look like and efficacy. Like, we've, you know, top-of-the-funnel stuff, Bottom of the phone stuff, maybe, but if you want to know literally whether you're getting what you paid for in real time, we will stand on a stage and and have the academic debate about why the components of our signal are are higher grade and actually line up with a much higher correlation to purchase intent and ultimate financial outcomes. And part of the reason, you know, sometimes what people say is, well, if that's true, then you know, why isn't more people doing it? And he, he, here's the answer: is it's fucking hard, like really, really hard. Think about what it means to say you can sort and scrub from all of search that's happening all the time, the granular specific around each and associated with in a time-stamped way with each and every piece of advertising. It really is like that scene in the matrix of saying, I can see what's going on as the numbers fall past me. And the bottom line is the woman who built the Google Trends product at Google who ended up working at Kensho literally said to our team one time, I'm not even sure, there's, I think there's people at Google who don't even know that this is possible at the scale that you're doing it. We've done it in a white paper sense, like in short form, highly specific sort of minute by minute resolution demonstrations, but on an industrial scale, we don't think there's anybody who's even close to being able to pull off technologically what Daniel and, and our amazing team have kind of pulled off uh, on a technological sense. And that's, that's one of the reasons I think people have a hard time wrapping their head around, can, can this actually be true? Because it is, it is literally like matrix-like vision of what's taking place in real time. And it's, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, Here's what I'd say. Um, there are times, and, and, and it's a great fine point to kind of close on, there are times where something feels like it's too good to be true, but actually it is true. And what it sounds to me like, and, and this is a, a great compliment, please take it as such, you've identified with EDO something that might sound like it's too good to be true, but it's actually true. Yeah. Anytime I can end a, a podcast by quoting Oscar Wilde, I will. 
because I think you're taking an, a not cynical, but you know, the great definition Oscar Wilde ascribed to a cynic was somebody who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And, <laughs> and you know, what, you, what you've just articulated is there is a relationship between the, the price and the value. Edward and Kevin, I, I, I can't thank you enough for one of the most robust conversations uh, that I've had on Good Company. And I've been doing this for, you know, uh, you were nice to say I'm not a cub reporter. I've been doing this for a minute or two. And uh, this is one of the most enjoyable and illustrative conversations of, of an opportunity and a challenge and a marketplace issue. So Edward Norton and Kevin Krim, thank you so much for, for, for sharing your thoughts. Thanks, we'll do it's it again. Fault. Absolutely. I'm Michael Casson. Thanks for listening to Good Company. Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. A special thanks to Lena Peterson, Chief Brand Officer and Managing Director of MediaLink, for her vision on Good Company. And to Jen Seeley, Vice President, Marketing Communications of MediaLink, for programming amazing talent and content. 